0: If you would like, uh, please turn to John chapter three. We're be in John chapter three, verses twenty-two to the end, so twenty-two to thirty-six. John chapter three, verses twenty-two to thirty-six. So how many of us, I don't know if you guys have, it's one of my favorites, how many of you have watched Interstellar? Interstellar. It's a Christopher Nolan movie. Interstellar. If you haven't, it, it's worth your time. I might watch it tonight. We'll see. It's so good. It's like three hours, but it's worth every single minute. It's so good. That soundtrack, too, is amazing. But do you guys, if you have watched it, if you haven't, you need to, but if you have watched it, do you, who's in the cast of Interstellar. You guys know any of the... Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey. Anyone else you recognize? And Hathaway. Hathaway. Anyone else? Timothy John. Michael Timothy. Timothy. Who Jessica, uh, Michael Chastain. Cain. Not Michael, not Michael Caine. Different old guy. <laughs> wait, wait, is Michael Caine in the movie? Oh, he is. There, yes, but there's, I was thinking of a different old guy in that movie. And the beautiful hole, I don't know her Jessica name. Jessica, Jessica, Jessica. Jessica. And John... Um, what's his name? John Gilgal? What's his... How do you say his last name? Gilgal. Huh? Is that how you say it? Oh, Matt, oh what's his name? The Boston guy, then. Matt, L- Matt da- oh, Yes, Matt <laughs> David. That's another one. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, Michael Caine's up there. Yeah. How old is Michael Caine? Oh, I thought you were Matt Damon. No, no, not Matt da- <laughs> No. Uh, so it's a, pretty, like, it's a pretty incredible cast. Lots of really just uh, familiar people. And one of the people you brought up was Timothy Chalamet. Uh, who a lot of us, yeah, maybe you didn't realize he's in the movie as Matthew McConaughey's son, but he's cast in that movie, and again, he's not, he's not really well known at that point, but recently he made um, uh, some comments about his time in Interstellar. He talked about when he watched it for the first time. He said, when I watched Interstellar, I saw that 12 times in theaters and IMAX. Christopher Nolan had a screening at Lincoln Square, and he invited just some of the people from the cast, which is surreal because it's a huge IMAX theater. But it was me, Anne Hathaway, Jessica, and John. And I really had no career at that point. So I was like the fraud a little bit in this room. And I saw it, and I loved it, but then I went home with my dad, and I wept for an hour. And he was being interviewed by uh, Emma Stone, and she said, why? And he said, because I figured my part was bigger. They didn't even cut anything. I just figured, I I don't know, I just figured it would be bigger. And I honestly think it's relatable for a lot of us, right? If we could watch the movie of our own lives play out, I'm sure a lot of us would go, oh, I thought I was a bigger deal. How many of you have ever thought, man, I wish I could see my own funeral just to see who shows up, right? Because you kind of want to know, was I a big deal or not? Do people like me? people I want to see certain people cry, right? If they don't cry... Right, we we have this sort of desire to kind of be a bigger deal than we actually are, right? And this there's an idea around this that's kind of been coined by our Gen Zers. It's called uh, main character energy. Yep. That's sort of the, or uh, main character syndrome. Right, it's this idea that you are the protagonist of your life, that you're a big deal. You got to capture that and be the big deal. Main, cha- main character energy. I know, so these youngins, I don't know. But it does stem from this idea that most of us, if not all of us, want to be in some way or not relevant. Right? We want to be important, perhaps not seen, but we want to be felt. We want people to know that we've made an impact in their life, and we want to mean something to the world. With, with that in mind, I don't think any of us would want to live a life where we say, I live my life to the fullest so that people won't remember me. Or I give my whole life into making somebody else known and remembered. Or, he must increase, I must decrease. Yet those are the very words of John the Baptist. A man with great influence and a divine mission who says, I don't want it to actually be about me. I don't want at the end of my life to be even remembered for what I do. What is our life pointing to? And does the rest of your life match up with what you say it is pointing to? What is our church to be about when we hear the words of John? As we finish up chapter 3 and even hear the last words of John the Baptist in this gospel, let's hear his exhortation for us. To live a life that causes our names to fade and Jesus to be seen because he is the one from above sent by God to bring eternal life. That we live a life that causes our names to fade, Jesus' name to be seen, because he is the one from above, sent by God to bring eternal life. Let's read John 3, verses 22 to 36. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them, and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon, near Salem. Because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a a Jew over purification. When they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent uttered others the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for its timeless truth. We pray that you give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. May I decrease, may Christ be made very, very big. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. John chapter 3 is a great summary of the gospel and its implications. Uh, In verses 1 to 13, we, we are presented with a great problem, that for us as mankind to experience perfection in eternity with God, this requires a second birth, a rebirth, a regeneration, because our current state is broken. It's unable to experience perfection with God. But the catch we're given is that this can only happen through the work of the Holy Spirit. This moves us into verses 16 to 21 that makes explicit the implicit need of regeneration. Sin. Sin is the great problem. The world is covered in darkness and is in need of a great light. And we're told right from John chapter 1 that that light is Jesus, the Christ, the unique Son of God who is sent into the world because God loves this world and he gives us hope in his Son that if you believe in his name, we could enjoy perfection. Jesus is the great solution to the world's great problem because he is greater than everyone who's come before him and is greater than everyone who will come after him. This includes our faithful Baptist John. He knows exactly where he stands in his, the story of the gospel. It is why he calls us to live to make Jesus' name known, to fade in the background, because Jesus is the one from above, sent by God to bring life. So let's look first at verses 22 to 26, where we, alongside John the Baptist's disciples, will ask this question. How do we stay relevant? Look at verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So, verse 22, a little earlier, transitions us away from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus to the countryside, where we see him and his disciples baptizing. But the focus isn't necessarily on Christ. We're actually brought to John the Baptist, who we're told is doing the same thing. He's continuing the ministry of baptizing people. The Jewish leaders didn't only take issue with Jesus, but also his forerunner, John the Baptist. So conversation strikes up with his disciples around the distinct Jewish purification rites, the ways that you keep yourself clean and holy in the Jewish system. This may have led to a conversation around baptism, which wasn't new, if you remember, uh, but was even seen as a way to daily make yourself clean. And so that would have maybe provided a natural segue to the question or the statement the disciples asked John the Baptist. Rabbi... He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Isn't it funny how uh, the disciples say all are going to him, even though the text just says that they're also baptizing? We love, we love extremes. That was true then. We do that today. Who's that? But they go to him and they say, hey, all everyone's going to Jesus. Right now, they, the text makes clear that John himself is baptizing, but there's something being felt by the disciples in that Jesus is drawing a crowd. I think it's a question many businesses, people, and churches will ask, as even if we come to the new year. How do we stay relevant? The disciples have wondered, hitching their wagons to the ministry of John, about the durability of their master's ministry. Jesus only seems to be becoming more popular with the people how much longer until we're forgotten. Like the next iPhone, right? There's only a certain amount of time before the one you have is obsolete. Are John's followers becoming obsolete? Is Netflix making way where Blockbuster used to be? And I don't think this is about competition for the disciples. They they do acknowledge that Jesus is the one that John ministered about, was proclaiming about. But even if it's true, and we know Jesus is supposed to be the one can we be a part of staying relevant in that? We, we still want to be important and seen. I think John's disciples are an example of what happens when the truth of God and his word is simply information. That it's just an idea. That it might be true and we, we say we believe it, but it doesn't, hasn't done anything to shape us. John is not the Baptist simply informed by Jesus, but has been transformed by him. And his life reflects that, as we'll see in his own response to the disciples. The disciples are on a quest for relevancy. There's a fear that they have of fading into the background. And I think that should be a reminder that what we do as Christians, as a church, why we live for Jesus, who is above all, is not to become someone great or relevant, but to make the name of Jesus great and relevant. It's when we forget who we are about... That we begin to think that our relevancy, our importance, our name matters. And that's why we can fall into insecurities in the life of the church, right? It's why we can even wrongly reach out to our community seeking to be relevant. We don't have to strive for relevancy, we need to point people to Jesus who, from beginning to end, is relevant. I think we can get in the way of Jesus because instead of just pointing people to him, we will do these Jesus-adjacent things, right? That have the appearance of being gospel, ministry. We water down themes and realities in the Bible because we know people won't like them. We jump at every opportunity to serve our community so people know we really care. If the driving force of our engagement with the people in our church or the people in our neighborhood is to be relevant we will find small and big ways to make it about ourselves, and even to compromise. Say that again. Yes, I do. No, I don't. Uh, uh, yes, if the driving force of our engagement with people in our church and our neighborhood is about making ourselves important or about being relevant, we will compromise in some ways the mission of our church and make it about ourselves, right? This is not what we're called to do. We're called to be disciples of the nations. And I'm not saying that means that we don't contextualize the gospel. What that means is that we don't consider, we don't think about who we are around, the people in our neighborhood, and helping them see how good the good news of Jesus is good for them, right? So we do do that. We do make it real for the people around us, but that's different than making it relevant, Relevancy can be a surface-level attempt to attract people to this space or building. Contextualization is thinking deeply about the heart issues in the people in our church and in our neighborhood in addressing those things with the gospel. That is what we're meant to be and to do. Jesus drives us to and in this mission. This is the kind of engagement we're to have. And so we don't ask the question, how do we stay relevant? We ask, how do we bring Christ to the conversation? Extras are a part of movie watching that we don't really think about, right? People in the background of your favorite movies who are paid to be there. It's a simple job, but it's important because there are so many scenes that would be incredibly awkward and strange if, oh, we got an extra right here. huh? oh, oh. (laughs) (laughs) but movies that would be incredibly awkward scenes that would make no sense if there weren't people in the background right? but we don't often think about those people and they appear on screen but they get a brief moment and they don't actually appear in the film credits most of the time but extras are a necessary uh, a need to make a movie but they will get neither the fame glory or adoration that the main cast will receive I think the question for us as we read of John is, are we okay with being an extra in the unfolding story of the gospel? Right? Let's look at verses 27 to 30 and see that John the Baptist, he is more than okay with that. He is joyfully receiving that call. John answered in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Uh, despite sounding disconnected to the statement just made by john's disciples his words here are meant to communicate something powerful in our culture there's often an idea that we we make ourselves that through hard work getting up after countless failures we can achieve but the key is you you're the key factor you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps well If you haven't done this before, we we should think well about how we actually got and get to where we are in life. But if you do this rightly, there are names, faces, people who will come to mind as you think about any kind of success that you've enjoyed in life or in your character formation today. John goes beyond this and understands on a deeper level that everything he is, everything he is doing is all because of God that has been given to him by the Father. That John the Baptist's mission to prepare Israel for the coming of Jesus was a promise made hundreds of years before he was even a thought. When he was still developing in his mother Elizabeth's womb, we read that God filled him with the Spirit. John's power and purpose are not self-made or man-made. It all comes, we're told, from heaven. That God's sovereignty stands behind all human achievement. That we don't have anything but what has been received from God. That language might be familiar to you, James 1, 17, that all good gifts come from above. And this includes John's call to this mission in the story of redemptive history. The first words out of John's mouth in response to disciples is a great starting place for all of us as we think about our purpose in life. That it doesn't actually begin with you. That this will help minimize your importance because the only one truly needed is God who gives the good gifts to us. Meaning that we don't ultimately have to depend on ourselves or one another but God the Father Father who loves and give. So that's a good thing. With this as our starting point, John reminds his disciples of what they already knew. Look at verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Uh, from the very beginning of his ministry, John has made it clear that he's not that guy. He's not the Messiah, he's not the Christ, he's not the savior, he's not the point. He was sent to direct our attention to the one who brings light to darkness, who can bring life to the dead, who brings hope in despair. Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John wants to make it plain for us here. When it comes to him and Jesus, Jesus is the bridegroom. He's just the friend. Today, the friend would be equivalent to being the best man. But there would be a lot more responsibility given to this friend. The friend would be chosen with more consideration than even the master of the banquet. If you remember John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, Jesus turning water into wine. We meet the master of the banquet who tastes the water turned into wine and says, this is even better than what was given before. Well, there would have been a friend, equivalent to a best man, but even more responsibility than the master of the banquet. The friend was a highly honored position who had numerous important functions at the wedding, serving as a witness, contributing financially, having a prominent place in the festivities, and providing general oversight in arrangement for the ceremony. John the Baptist is saying, I'm not chump change, but the bride belongs to the bridegroom. I know my place. This wedding picture is being drawn for us. Jesus is the bridegroom. He we are we are told all throughout scripture we're given this this picture. Right? This in the Old Testament, this picture of Israel waiting for their long awaited bridegroom, their king, their Messiah. In the Old Testament, God is frequently Or Israel is frequently described as God's bride. If you were to look at Isaiah 62, verse 4 and 5. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more uh, be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Jeremiah 2.2 2. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not shown. Hosea chapter 2, verse 16 to 20. In, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land. I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. This picture is continuing in the New Testament as John the Baptist situates us in the wedding. He is the best man. Jesus is the bridegroom who's come for his bride, his people, Israel, fulfilled by the church. John's just happy to be here. In any wedding, The best man has a role, but it's not about him. He rejoices with the bridegroom. The bridegroom's voice is like that moment of stillness as the doors are opened and the bride walks in. And everyone's just looking at her in all her glory. And this is what the bridegroom's voice is like it's the start of the ceremony. So John the Baptist has heard the voice of Christ and he rejoices. His joy is made complete because the wedding has begun. He doesn't get the girl, but she wasn't his to begin with. She belonged to Christ. The fulfillment of Israel, the church. We are a people made up, regenerated by the Spirit, who believe in the blood sacrifice of Jesus, confess his name, and now have been given to Jesus as the bride. We are the bride of Christ. He is our bridegroom. John's gleeful response is a model of how we should be church. That when God blesses those in our family, elevates some of us, demonstrates visible favor, heals those who've been sick, provides the job they've been looking for, we should be a people like John who rejoice at the work of God as he sees the completion of his role and rejoices, we should do the same as we see the work of God in this world and in one of others' lives. But also, I think John is an example to us as to what we are meant to be as the friend in some practical ways. Because we're also the friend. We are the bride of Christ, but we are also the friend who prepares those to see Jesus. Interestingly enough, again, it was the duty of the friend to also provide assistance to the bride. So this would include tasks of ensuring the the bride was bathed, appropriately dressed and adorned, publicly escorted from her father's house to her new home. In this sense, John the Baptist was the true friend of the bridegroom, who not only performed preparation work for the bridegroom, but also helped the bride, Israel, the people of God, to be ready to receive the bridegroom. The ministry of John the Baptist should be viewed as pre-wedding work, purifying us, right? Think about his baptism and ensuring that God's people are appropriately dressed and adorned before they are introduced to the bridegroom Jesus. And this is what we are meant to do as we live out the great commission. That we go, therefore, we make disciples of the nations, we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and we teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded them. We, as the church, are preparing people, one another, and those outside this wall, these walls, for that final wedding day. This is the language of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We have a part in this work as the friend to the bridegroom. But this eternal work may not get you any fame or even importance, the importance you're looking for in this life. What happens at the end of a play, church? Do you know what happens? The curtain closes. That was right. Good for you. Yes. The point of our lives is that the curtain would close so that another would open and that people would see Christ. We want him to take center stage. We want him to be the point. Verse 30 is exactly that. It is the reality of following Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now you know why I pray this. It's in the Bible. (laughs) John's curtain call is coming, but that's exactly what his whole life has been about. That there is a divine necessity for that to happen. Again, notice the strong language. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. This is not an option. It's not something maybe I should do. This is necessary. To follow Jesus, to live for him, requires that he becomes more and more about what our lives are about. And the very nature of discipleship demands this. Right, a disciple in the first century context lived to become like their master. And the things they said down to their mannerisms. But more than that, when it comes to Christ, it means becoming more, greater and greater recipients of his grace. Yes, yes, yes. Growing in maturity actually means depending on Jesus more. Yes. That the longer we live for Jesus, the more we lean on Jesus. We need him more and more. So we need to decrease that he might increase. But again, it also means that we do what we do exists to serve and eventually fade into the background of Christ. Uh, Scotty Pippen, basketball player, played for the Chicago Bulls in the 90s. In recent years has complained a lot about a lot of different things. It's, been, it's really sad, actually. But part of what he's been going about is not getting enough credit. He feels like he's been slighted and has not gotten enough credit for the championships won in the 90s. Do you know who the guy who gets credit is? Michael Jordan. Good for you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Michael Jordan gets all the credit. And, you know, there's some truth to what Scotty's saying. His defense was spectacular. If you're not too familiar, the year Jordan decided to go play golf, uh, he actually did. He was, like, phenomenal. They got to the playoffs. um, They did a really good job. So he, he was a phenomenal player, but he wasn't that guy. Um, So there's truth to what he's saying, but the guy who made it all happen when he came back was Michael Jordan. MJ, he, he was the point. He was the star. He got the shoes. He got the money. He got the fame. Can we joyfully serve Jesus as Scotty and not MJ? I think that's the question we have to ask. Are we satisfied being in the shadow of Christ, allowing him to be the point, and enjoying the benefits of winning with Jesus? That's what we get to do. And it's not something to complain or grumble about. It's something to to rejoice in. That if we're going to have this posture, one that looks to be in the shadow of Christ, we have to ask, what is the trajectory of our lives? Is it an increase of us or is it an increase of Jesus? Are we decreasing or is Jesus decreasing? What would it actually look like for you to make Jesus the point of your life? Practically, I think for me, as a pastor, what this means is preparing to become irrelevant in my own job. That there is a day coming sooner than we all think. I'm not trying to, you know, this isn't like a gotcha moment. Uh, But there is a day coming sooner than we think that I will be made irrelevant. Whether the Lord calls me to glory or calls me to a different task God doesn't need me to do this work that's because right. I'm not the point. I'm not the point. And that's a good thing. You don't want me to be the point. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. Right? We need more of Christ. As a church, what this means practically is that we're not trying to make faith community church providence. Fa- I put providence because there's other faith community churches. But the point isn't to make FCC providence famous, right? That's why instead of trying to do our own food pantry, you said, let's just partner with Impact. Mm -hmm. That's why we pray for the increase of ministry of other churches in Providence because we don't have to be the church that grows by hundreds and hundreds. We want people to get saved, but they don't have to be a part of our church. We want God's people to come and be part of the church. What does it look like for you to make Jesus the point of your life? Verse 31 through 35 explain why. Verse 30 is so necessary. What's revealed is why Jesus makes such a better lead than us. Why he should be the main character of our lives. Why it's not good, but necessary for him to increase and us to decrease. Look at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. In this kind of sandwich, we're given the heavenly origins of Jesus. He's not like us. He is from above. And furthermore, he is above everything. What's being developed here is a Christology, a doctrine or theology around Jesus. Jesus is not built of the same stuff we are. We, again, we recited this as we read the Apostles' Creed. Jesus is not like us we are earthlings and this limits us in some very important ways even john the baptist with all his pointing to jesus with all his uh, mission and power could not do what jesus came to do that yes john could call people to repentance and to baptism in water but he could not reveal heaven's ultimate truths john the baptist couldn't offer regeneration He could not offer long-promised renewal by water and Spirit. John the Baptist's references to the Holy Spirit in John chapter 1 were promises of what another person could do, what Jesus would do. So even though John was sent by God, he is like all of us, only human. Only the Son of Man can speak with supreme authority of heavenly things. For he alone testifies to why he has, what he has seen and heard in the heavenly realities. And that's what make, makes verse 32 so shocking. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Despite Jesus' legitimacy being from the heavens, coming into our world in order to show us how we're meant to live and to grasp eternal life, we don't listen. We ignore his testimony, the signs he has given that point to something otherworldly, his words, his mission, his purpose. I think if you're not a Christian, I think the encouragement as you engage with this text is to really challenge yourself by Jesus' words to not, like everyone else that we're told here, ignore his testimony. To see that Jesus is not like us, that he is at the same time both fully human and fully God, come from heaven to bring eternal truth about eternal life to us. And that it might be worth considering the words he spoke, looking at the signs he gave, to read his word, to talk to other believers who may not have all the answers, but would discover those answers with you. That we are not meant to ignore the testimony of Jesus, but to give it a true and honest hearing. To see if he is who he truly says he is. And in part, it's because of verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. John claims that to receive Jesus is to accept that God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is true. But the inverse of that is if you don't receive Jesus, to reject Jesus is to call God then a liar, a deceiver. To believe in God and reject his son Jesus is to accuse him of evil and corruption. It's to put yourself in a large way above God if you have decided to cast judgment on his son. But John the gospel writer wants you to see this. Look at verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. That the plan of God to love us, to care for us, is through the son of God. That God sent His Son the Word to speak His words. That He gives Him the Spirit without measure. That means, as you think about throughout redemptive history, you can see how God has sent messengers before Jesus. Prophets, kings, and others, each received a, a measure, a specific amount of the grace of the Spirit that was required for their task. But not Jesus. To Him alone, God gives everything. Everything. The Spirit without limit because who He is and His purpose requires it. And see, the God the Father's love for His Son to who He has given everything. That means God has put Jesus above us. That He's put Him in place to bring life and judgment. Hope for the lost but justice to evil. These verses highlight how we worship a Trinitarian God. The Father who plans and acts, the Son who is sent, and the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and Son to work in us. Jesus is God's plan. Verse 36 tells us just as much. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So if you believe in Jesus, God's beloved Son, sent to speak the word of God, empowered in limitless ways by the work of the Spirit, right now you have eternal life. And again, remember that eternal life is not just about forever then. It speaks to quality of life now. That In part, we can experience perfection today because we have eternal life right now. That this is a gift that we get to enjoy in part today in this very moment. This is present tense. So though it's not perfect, we can see how God cares for us through His Son. We can experience a peace that surpasses all understanding. Right? we can experience a joy that exists outside of circumstance. We can experience grace and strength to make it through the day, new mercies every single morning, safety and comfort in God. These are available to us right now because we've been given eternal life right now. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. But if that is true, what is also made to be true is the inverse. That is if, if we can experience eternal life right now as those who believe We also read that whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That God's wrath on those who disobey Christ is just as present as his gift of eternal life is on those who believe in Christ. That God's great love rejected has you dealing with his great wrath. A wrath that has already been set in motion. Because all of us have inherited us in nature from our ancestor Adam. Because all of us have in our life rejected God and sinned against him. All of us, apart from Christ, are waiting for a wrath that will be finalized, truly realized, in the judgment to come when Jesus returns. Notice the language, that this comes to those who disobey the Son. There's a clear connection in verse 36 I don't want us to miss. And I hope we don't miss that belief reveals itself in obedience that the Christian life is the transformed life. And none of us who claim to believe in the saving work of Christ who've been made new by it should live lives unchanged or unaffected that we should grow in our obedience to Jesus. I think we can fail to see the importance of our obedience on this side of grace and I know this because we can often have believers, Christians, who are not actually obeying Jesus. And I don't think those things can happen. To believe Jesus is to learn and to do all he says, like in the Great Commission. Not out of the flesh, understand, right? This is not something we do of ourselves, but in the spirit. In the spirit, Christians do obey We can, if we're not careful, minimize the power of the gospel when we present a church of confessors of truth whose lives are far from that truth. And I think the temptation is really easy because we don't want to be realistic. We don't want to appear to be a works-based gospel church. But without realizing we can hinder the growth of those in the church and present an unchanging power to the world in the gospel. The gospel saves and transforms. It's built into the Great Commission that Jesus commands us to live out. It's embedded in the very idea of discipleship, helping others look like Jesus by showing them how and doing everything he calls us to do. Outside of this gospel-led obedience, all there is is the wrath of God. D.A. Carson Writes, God's wrath is not some impersonal principle of retribution, but the personal response of a holy God who comes to his own world. The immeasurable wrath of God is a necessary response to the equally immeasurable love of God. But God has not abandoned us. When we read that God's wrath remains, this is telling us that God's wrath is the starting point because we are not neutral towards him. But it's also an invitation to something God has brought into the conversation. It's an invitation to see a gift given to us that brings us out of the wrath that we sit in. In verse 27, John the Baptist announced, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And then we move down to verse 31, and what do we see? He who comes from above is above all. He who comes from heaven is above all. Who came from heaven? Our problem is God, His wrath. Our solution is from above, Jesus, whom God has sent into the world. Jesus comes to save us from God. God saves us from Himself. And to express his love for you, Jesus wants to marry you. This is why he sends John the Baptist ahead of him, his friend, the best man, to prepare us, the bride, for the wedding day. John doesn't want the bride because he knows she, we, belong to Jesus. And that's really remarkable. That's an incredible thing to think about. Because do you realize that even if John the Baptist wanted to be the bridegroom, if any of us wanted to be the bridegroom, the, the lead, the point, we can't afford the bride price. During this time, in the scripture is every bride came at a price given by the father who is losing a daughter. Do you know what the cost is to marry you? No? <laughs> the cost for a people who have sinned again and again rejected God, brought pain to one another, destruction to his creation, death, the cost for that is a wrath-filled judgment. It's death. But again, not simply death. Death that comes with the fullness of God's justice. Felt and known. That is your bride price. That is the cost to marry us. And Jesus joyfully pays it at full. Jesus comes to, to, to do that work that none of us can afford to do. He buys us with his blood. That's why we are no longer our own. That's why we belong fully and truly to Jesus. The wedding has been inaugurated by the coming of Christ. His voice is the start of the ceremony. And Jesus' return, when he comes back, will be the consummation of our kingdom marriage to Jesus. The wedding in full and all of its celebration. And during that time, Jesus will be all we care to think about. He will be the point and we will joyfully celebrate him for eternity. But as we see this text, what we can be reminded of is that there's no reason we can't start that right now. We can do that today. We can live a life where we fade in the background because it's not about us. We're not the point. Where we can elevate the name of Jesus to one another and to those in our neighborhood so that Jesus might be seen. Because he's the one from above, he's the one sent by God who brings the promise of eternal life. Let's do that. Let's do that. That's good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for its truth for the realities spoken in it that we get to experience right now, that right now we get to experience in part eternal life in Christ because you have loved us so very much and that expression of your love is seen in your son, Christ. We thank you for him and we give ourselves to him and we pray that we could walk as John the Baptist did, as those who would proclaim and live out his words. I must decrease must increase, that your name might be known and heard and seen, that Jesus, you would be confessed and believed and obeyed. May we be a church that lives that out as imperfectly as we will, and may we call people to enjoy the gift of Christ in this very same way. In your name we pray. Amen.